Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello ladies and gents, and welcome to the History of England, episode 127, A Model of Chivalry. This week, gentle listeners, I thought we'd take our eyes off the political ball and spend a bit of time talking about a chap called Henry Bolingbroke. Now, I suspect you all know our Henry by now, and if you don't, shame on you, since we've mentioned his name often enough but I thought we'd spend a bit more time in his company, since he'll be a player in our humble drama for a while yet. And also, I thought his life and times over these years contrasted his life with that of his contemporary and cousin Richard II. So in the years between the dramatic events of the appellants and the merciless Parliament, so in the years after the dramatic events of the appellants and the merciless Parliament, Richard was struggling away establishing his rule playing the hard game of politics after his humiliating political defeat. While he was doing this, how did the heir of the greatest magnate of the land, a young man with the world at his feet and a fat wallet, how did he spend his time? So, a little recap first of all. I probably am being a bit insulting if I remind you that Henry Bolingbroke was the son and heir of the richest magnate of the land, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, a man with an income of £12,000 a year, fabulously, fabulously wealthy by the standards of his time. And he hadn't even had to invent an operating system or dig an oil well. John himself had more titles than flies on a turd, if you'll forgive the slightly indelicate expression. His family had sort of collected them by marriage and royal grant over the centuries. He was Earl of Leicester and Earl of Derby, as well as Duke of Lancaster. So he let a couple fall off the end of the lorry, as it were, and often Bolingbroke is referred to as the Earl of Derby, or the Earl of Northampton. And in 1397, he'll become the Duke of Hereford. 
All this multiple title and changing title stuff is very common by the late Middle Ages, so I have quite relentlessly referred to Henry as Bolingbroke after the place of his birth, and I will grimly continue to do so despite all temptations to do otherwise. I hope that meets with your approval. Now, there were very few ways to get ahead as a noble in medieval England. Social mobility was not a national Social mobility was not a national aspiration as it is now. They were, in fact, dirty words when used together. The responsibility of the head of the magnate family, then, was to help the family get ahead, to preserve the glory and power of the family, to honour his ancestors and further enrich his successors. And the key to power, influence and glory was land, and broadly will be until the 19th century. So how to get hold of a bit of land? You could get into royal service and get a fat grant from the king as a reward, but to be honest, you wouldn't get vast amounts, because the king had learnt not to alienate their lands permanently since they didn't have enough left. And actually, Parliament stopped them doing it now, since it detracted from the throne's rights and powers. If you were lucky, you could follow the traditional pursuit of the rich and go warring and hopefully get yourself a nice fat ransom by giving the French a kicking. But to be honest, after 1370 it was the French who were giving the English a kicking, and by the mid-15th century they are positively pooing on English heads, so that was the very, so that was at very best an uncertain route to follow. No, the biggest game in town was marriage. Don't go west, young man. Marry an heiress, my son. Marry an heiress. And that applies to pretty much all levels of society. Though with magnates, we're talking about vast tracts of land. And at the bottom of society, we may be talking about just the curtains. But marriage was a tricky business and beset with dangers. It's almost inexplicably complicated because everyone played all kinds of tactics to protect the family inheritance. So, for example, here's a word for you, entail. The idea of an entail was to attach a legal provision that meant whoever you gave the land to had to give it back to the original family when they died. So you might indeed have managed to get some geezer to give you vast tracts of land. But when you died, your heirs would have a big fat zip. This is the problem that Mr Bennett faced in trying to marry off his daughters and the terrors that plagued Mrs Bennett's nerves when faced by the odious Mr Collins on whom the land was entailed. Jane Austen's obsessions with land and marriage was little different, by the way, to that of every medieval magnate hundreds of years earlier. So that's entail for you. One little tactic. You might then combine your commoner garden entail with enfiefment. You'll all have heard of a fief, the giving of land in return for service the good old knight's fee. And what you did is to enfief a minion with some land, but entailed to come back to the original family when the minion died. So that way, the land was put aside and protected. If the king happened to take a guinea and confiscate some land for treason or other, or if you died young and saw your heirs potentially going through a ruinous wardship, the family wouldn't lose that land that they'd enfiefed away in the long run because someone else was looking after it while the family went through all that trouble. OK, entail, enfiefment, shenanigans. A couple more words for you. After all, in the words of Marvin, 
Why stop now, just when you're hating it? The next word is dowry, which you'll all have heard about. Some land or money sent with the bride by her family, which is hers alone, not under the control of her husband. So that if hubby croaks first and has been rubbish at managing the family wealth, at least she'll have that to fall back on. But the problem with dowries is that when the widow does finally die, they get handed down in her new family. They don't go back to the old one. So we get our final word of the day, jointra. A nasty word to say, let me tell you. And this was an additional parcel of land given by the husband to his wife during her life. The thing is, a jointra could be taken by the wife, if widowed, to her second husband. And if she died, the second husband could keep it while he lived, so a jointra could mean land got alienated for quite a while. And then, of course, there'd be negotiation about the marriage portion, the goods and money the bride was supposed to bring with her when she got married. Jolly complicated. The trick in all of this was to marry well and live long. But living long was reasonably uncommon in those days, so all kinds of strategies had to be put in place to guard against dying young. All of this meant that a marriage negotiation was a major event in a family's history. It was carried out with hard faces and flinty eyes, because families prospered or died by the choices they made in marriage. The father of the groom and heir would be seeking an alliance that extended his estates and land. The father of the bride would seek to extend his political and social connections. Now this almost makes it all sound like some kind of cattle market, and that is actually pretty accurate. But of course, parents love their children every bit as much as they do now, and would normally do their very best in the settlement to protect their children's interests. And by and large, they usually tried to make sure the young couple were happy with the arrangements. But as long as they consented, that wasn't actually a requirement. In particular, if as an heir you tried to punch above your weight and marry an heiress above you, you'd realise that you'd have to pay a price. This might be in the form of a big jointer given to the new wife. Or maybe she'd bring no marriage portion with her. And if you did get it wrong, so if you bagged an heiress with beautiful swathes of land coming to her, only to find that her parents then produced an heir, you would be left with nothing. So quite often, actually, with this in mind, parents would play safe with the heir and they'd go for the big heiress tactic only for a younger son. What you really wanted to avoid was an expensive wardship, which is when you died young, leaving underage heirs who were then snapped up by some other lord until their majority. These wards were very vulnerable, especially to the unscrupulous. So people betrothed their children before puberty and got them married and producing heirs as quickly as they could. To be honest, I'm not sure why I'm telling you all this. It is, after all, the sort of thing which I'm genuinely rubbish at understanding. Because I'm a bloke, after all, and this thing is the preserve of grandmothers. But I seek to illustrate a general point. Many of you have found all the names confusing, which is a tricky problem for a podcast. But it has been a cakewalk so far, folks, a cakewalk. The history of the late Middle Ages, and especially the Wars of the Roses, is to a significant degree the history of a few families. We might talk about constitutional history, economic and social change, trade and towns, monarchy, civilization, and all that jazz. But in the end, 
it's all tribal for the vanishingly small group of people who owned the vast majority of the land and wealth. So, what's all this got to do with our Bolingbroke? Well, two points first. Well, two points, really. First of all, Bolingbroke was part of a tiny, tiny elite. The peerage of which he was part was composed of somewhere between two and three hundred families, with incomes of more than a thousand pounds a year. Then the second point, from 1350 for the next hundred years, an accident of nature means that a higher number of peers died without an heir, so there's more chopping and changing than we've had up to now. Money, they say, makes money, and this was so in Bolingbroke's case. As a treat, one day in 1380, when Henry was 13, Daddy bought him a nice little heiress, one Mary Bohoon. Gee, thanks, Dad, you shouldn't have. There is a story attached to this which illustrates how important marriage terms were. Mary was the younger sister of two. Her elder sister, Eleanor, was married to Thomas of Woodstock, who we now know as the Duke of Gloucester, Edward III's youngest son. The story goes that Eleanor played on her little sister's religious feelings and so tried to persuade Mary to become a nun, a poor Clare, so that Eleanor could keep all that lovely lolly. There's nothing like sisterly love. The fact that she didn't, and that the inheritance was therefore divided between Eleanor and Mary, meant that Gloucester would forever be relatively poor for a duke, and resentful of it, with dire consequences. Anyhow, as medieval marriages go, Henry and Mary seem to have been pretty content as far as we can tell. They were married in 1381, when Henry was 14 and Mary 12, the poppet, and probably consummated the marriage when she was 14. They were certainly fecund, a word almost as nasty as moist, with six children to their names before Mary died in childbirth in 1394 at the still tender age of 27. As time went by, the fecundity of Henry's marriage compared to the barrenness of Richard's was in stark contrast and didn't go without comment. While Gaunt was out of the country chasing his Castilian dreams of kingship, Henry was therefore the de facto head of the Lancaster clan, and so it was that Henry became one of the appellants when it's pretty likely his father would never have countenanced such a carry-on. In John's view, a king is a king, and undermining his dignity undermined the rightful dignity of everyone of noble birth, and you end up with the great unwashed getting above themselves, and then where would you be? And it's notable that when Gaunt is around, his son is much more distant from the political goings-on at court. There's no suspicion that Henry and his father were anything other than close. But when Gaunt returned in 1389 after Richard had been humbled, Henry is then basically an enormously rich, privileged young man with time on his hands. Henry had a love of reading and learning to a degree that would have made most red-blooded medieval magnates feel slightly uncomfortable. But he was also one of the greatest jousters in the land, taking part from a very young age, i.e. 14. And in June 1389 came one of the great jousts of the Middle Ages at the fields of St. Anglevere. The gig here was that three French knights, in the finest chivalric manner, raised their standards and set up their pavilions at St. Anglevere near Calais. I said they would ride five strokes or courses against all comers. These knights were Bouquicourt, 
Renaud de Roy and Jean de Saint-Pie. Well, the chivalric grapevine was all a-quiver with the excitement of it all. John of Gaunt ordered his herald to carry the news of the challenge throughout England, and Bolingbroke excitedly got his entourage together, and along with the brightest and the best of his contemporaries, crossed over to Calais. In particular, there was his fellow appellant Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, a jouster every bit as famous as Bolingbroke, and John Holland, who was basically an aristocratic thug, half-brother of Richard, killer of Ralph Stafford, and seducer of Elizabeth of Lancaster. And with them went a crowd of colourful and enthusiastic supporters and minstrels and jesters and all the paraphernalia. On the first day of combat, Holland kicked things off. In a tree by the field was one of the Frenchman's squires, keeping a tally of all the combatants and strokes. Some of the stories got captured by Froissart, and rather amusingly by a monk at the French monastery of Saint-Denis, who faithfully recorded a list of all he knew. It's a lovely image of the monk in his cold monastery, recording all the remarkably violent goings-on of the hideously wealthy. Anyway, up rode Holland, took his wand, and struck the shield on the tree, demanding a joust of war. This was a major feature of the tournament. Not only were these three knights offering to fight with vast numbers of violent young men, they were also allowing them to choose uncapped lances if they wanted to, and once Holland had chosen uncapped, well, you knew nobody else could wander up and say, Oh no, I don't think I'll have the uncapped, that sounds a bit nasty. Aussi fou, messieurs, mesdames, comme un boîte de fromage. Anyway, out came Bukikor, wearing a motto, whatever you want. He was a famous hero who would one day be Marshal of France and be captured by the English near a small village called Agincourt. With his minstrels playing behind him, Holland rode to the end of the lists. Bukikor and Holland turned and faced each other from opposite ends as the crowds chanted their names and indulged in substantial amounts of egging, and then off the two galloped. At the end of five strokes, Holland's shield had been broken and his helmet had flown off, and Bukikor was unbeaten. Next up was Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, riding against de Roy. At the first stroke, their horses shied away. On the second, De Roy's lance broke and Mowbray caught him a hard blow, but on the third, De Roy hit Mowbray so hard that his helmet flew off and he was unable to continue. And so it went on for eight opponents in the first day, 13 on the second, seven on the third. As knights arrived from England, Hainault, Lorraine, Germany and Bohemia, they all then had a rest with four days of feasting and games and music and dancing in their brightly coloured pavilions. Maybe Borkikor sat together with Bolingbroke and told him about his first battle at the age of 16, fighting with the Teutonic Knights in Lithuania, of his wars and travels in Spain, the Balkans and the Middle East. At the end of the fifth day, two of the French knights, Borkikor and de Roy, were so battered that you could have put them in a newspaper and sold them with the bag of chips. But the third de Saint-Pie held the field until they were back, and at last it was Bolingbroke's turn. Now, no doubt Henry was delighted that his dad had asked Borkikor for a special favour. Would he please ride not five, 
but ten strokes against his lad. With flags flying, the crowd chanting, Bolingbroke and Bookycore rode at each other for ten full strokes. There's no doubt Henry did himself proud. One French chronicler chose to record only his name from all of the challengers. And as they all parted from their blood-soaked picnic, Bookycore asked him to go on crusade with him to Tunis. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, of course, Bolingbroke went home all fired up and immediately made preparations. But at the very last minute, he was refused permission to travel, probably by Richard himself. And so that apparently was that. But Henry now had the thought of crusade in his head and couldn't get it out of there. So if he couldn't make it to Tunis, there was an alternative. Lithuania which gives me a cast-iron and indeed copper-bottomed opportunity to talk about Eastern Europe, Lithuania, the Teutonic Knights and Crusades. It also gives me a chance to thank Amanda, who got me a monster signed copy of the superb book by Christopher Tymon called God's War, The Complete History of the Crusades. If it's not in there, it's probably not worth knowing. I don't know about you, but my geography of Eastern Europe is more than a little sucky, but as far as I can see, you've got your Germany, right? Let's focus on rivers to help us, since you have a series of major rivers travelling north and emptying into the Baltic Sea. So there's your Elbe, which goes through Berlin and ends up at Denmark's bottom. Then next along east, you've got your River Oder, which forms the eastern boundary of Germany today. And then further east you're up to the River Vistula, which currently goes slap-bang through the middle of Poland. And then if you keep going east, you get to the three Baltic states on the Gulf of Finland, west to east, modern-day Lithuania, Latvia and then Estonia. The map of medieval Eastern Europe was different in a number of ways. Estonia is sort of in the same place, but then Lithuania is an enormous place, far larger than the current state. 
Poland's a lot smaller, and we have this famous place between the Oder and the Vistula along the coast called Prussia. Now much of this is converted very late to Christianity, and at the time Bolingbroke was born, Lithuania was still a massive, aggressive state, and still pagan. The Holy Land had finally fallen with the fall of Acre in 1291. The importance of the crusade in the imagination of Christendom lived on as powerful as ever, but in the later Middle Ages it had without doubt been corrupted into absurd crusades between Christian states and antipopes. Now very few of the crusades could be described as pure emotive, but at least in northeastern Europe they were until much later wars against pagans rather than Christians. Throughout the Middle Ages, there is a stream of crusades into pagan Estonia and Finland, led mainly by Denmark and Sweden. And there are many similarities between the states so formed and the later states of Outremer. So, for example, you get this brutal and rather exotic military order, the Sword Brothers, based in Estonia, who, though never numbering more than 120 knights, held out in the early 13th century, joined yearly by a swell of crusaders looking for God and glory. From Germany, the first wars were in the 12th century against the Western Slavs or the Wends, who lived in between the Elbe and the Oder. There's a lovely quote that sums up the brutality of the crusades against the Slavs from the leading religious leader of the time, Bernard of Clairvaux in France, when he said that the crusade against the Slav was until such time as, by God's help, they shall either be converted or deleted. Deleted. OK? That's clear. The job of the 13th century, though, lay further east beyond the Oder in Prussia. The area was populated by the pagan Old Prussians, and during the 13th century it was conquered by the Teutonic Knights. And in the process they formed the crusader state of Prussia that would be massively influential in German history. The Teutonic Knights had been founded in 1198 as a religious military order, very much along the same lines as the Hospitallers and the Templars. It was an order formed to protect German pilgrims on their way to the Holy Land. During the 13th century, they moved, like other orders, to Acre after the fall of Jerusalem, and would be based there well after the main centre of their activity had moved to Prussia. Just like other orders, by the 13th century the order had become a major landowner across Western Europe. The war against the old Prussians predated the involvement of the Teutonic Knights, but in 1225, after a series of defeats at the hands of the pagan old Prussians, the Teutonic Knights were called in to help. The way they got involved reflected the new strategy also prevalent in the Holy Land at this time. Give the job to the specialists, to a military order. So Emperor Frederick II basically set them up with the autonomy to invade Prussia and keep what they could take. Through the 1230s, the Teutonic Knights advanced steadily down the Vistula, building castles as they went, and their success meant they were given the responsibility to conquer Livonia and Estonia as well and the Sword Brothers were folded into their order. In fact, during the next 20 years, the backlash by the Prussians almost wiped them out, and it was only a steady influx of crusaders from around Christendom that allowed them to hold on. 
So by 1300, the Teutonics were finally secure in Prussia and Estonia. But they still faced the pagan state of Lithuania. Through the 14th century, the Crusades against Lithuania provided the only opportunity for crusading against a pagan enemy given that Acre had fallen in 1291. The regular campaigns were called Ryzen, in the freezing winter and soggy summer which gave the only focus to the tradition of religious mission. Nobles travelled from all over to campaigns that sounded enormously glamorous as they rode off from their home village, puffing out their chests, hoping to impress the girls, and then cold, sordid, dangerous and brutal in practice, against an aggressive and effective foe in the empty wilderness. So off went Bolingbroke to be part of what had become almost like a kind of chivalric package tour. There were special feasts, displays of heraldry, souvenirs and prizes. He embarked at Boston in Lincolnshire, loading the vast quantities of supplies needed to keep the rich and famous happy, including four pounds of a pine nut conserve and two pounds of aniseed sweets. For three weeks, he and his retinue creaked along at sea and eventually ended up at Danzig, modern Gdansk, now in Poland, then in Russia. Bolingbroke's campaign was horribly typical of the later Middle Ages. First of all, his opponents were no longer pagan. Jagiela, their duke, had finally converted in 1386. Ah, said the Crusaders, but he's fighting against his brothers. Sadly, his brothers had also been converted. The fig leaf fought was essentially a war of conquest and chivalric tourism was that many of their followers were still pagan. And secondly, crusading in the cold and wet northeastern Europe lacked much of the glamour of the Holy Land. There was a smidgen of glory in the attack on Vilnius when Bolingbroke led the charge that took the first tower of the town. But three weeks later, cold, wet, diseased, Bolingbroke and his men were still outside the castle walls. And so Bolingbroke retreated to Königsberg because this was neither fun nor productive. At Königsberg, we're back to the life of the happy-go-lucky and loaded young magnate, jousting, hunting, feasting and music. Henry himself employed a small troop of six musicians. After a splurge of almsgiving and gift-presenting in Danzig, Ballingbrook sailed for home and arrived back in January 1391, where he reaped the benefits of his adventure. Here was a two-year-old, tall, athletic, great jouster, a crusading hero, heir to the richest inheritance in land. Henry was on top of his games, Henry was on top of his game and greeted in London by wildly enthusiastic crowds to welcome him back. Back at court, Henry had to suffer the sight of Richard in his prime, fully developed in his regality and control, apparently being the king he should always have been. And with John of Gaunt leading the Lancaster clan, Bolingbroke was probably quite bored. So he headed back out to get a bit more glory with the Teutonic Knights, but when he arrived at Danzig, he was met by the ultimate disaster for the medieval knight. No one was fighting anyone. Horror of horrors, there was peace. Ouch. So rather bravely, Bolingbroke decided to go to the Holy Land, a journey of 2,000 miles. 
OK, so he had money, status and men, but it's still quite a thing at the time to undertake such a journey. So through Germany, he travelled to Prague and was greeted in honour by King Wenceslas. Then on to Vienna, arriving November 1392 and meeting the Duke of Austria and the King of Hungary. And thence to Venice, a far huger city than any he would have known before, 70,000 souls. And there the Senate of Venice voted him a ship to take him to the Holy Land free of charge. After another round of parties and almsgiving, Henry was on ship and arrived in Jaffa, and then on as a pilgrim to Jerusalem and the Holy Sepulchre. Now look, the lad was having a complete hoot. I mean, it couldn't be bad, could it? He was a visiting potentate, greeted by the lords of everywhere he went, fated as a hero and a pilgrim. He's young, rich, adored, and treated everywhere with respect. Meanwhile, back home, wife Mary's bringing up the kiddies. There's no rubbish here about the new man. The trip home was very much the same. Back to Venice, and in no great hurry, travelling back as he went through Italy and France. Particularly notable was the visit to Milan, and a stay with the famous Renaissance prince Gian Gialazzo Visconti. Gian Gialazzo took him on a sightseeing tour to see the tomb of his dead uncle Lionel. And as he went, Bolingbroke charmed for Lancaster and England. So a local squire begged to join his service, for example, and was accepted, and let's hope that he enjoyed English weather when he arrived. The 21-year-old princess Lucia Visconti was smitten, and later said that if it had been possible, she would have been prepared to wait for Henry forever as she accepted some second best from an alternative marriage proposal. For Henry, though, the next few years would probably have been something of a disappointment and anticlimax. His wife, Mary Bahoon, died in 1394 at the tender age of 28, probably worn out from producing six children, of whom one would be king, one a queen, three dukes and one an electress of Germany. I'm not really describing that as an anticlimax, you understand. No, the disappointment in anticlimax thing is that to some degree he's on the political sidelines. His father's the boss of the clan and advisor of the king. In 1394, when Richard went to Ireland, he left the Duke of York as keeper of the realm, not Henry or even John of Gaunt. He wasn't marked out for special diplomatic tasks. Richard's great mate... The replacement of De Vere is Edward of Rutland, the Duke of York's son, not Henry. So we're back to the business of a rather cold, distant politeness between Richard and Henry. No warmth, no disfavour, but no favour. So we see Henry wandering around his possessions during these years, and when he meets the king, his reception was cold, and in the words of a chronicler, without love. So there we have it. As we catch up with the political events again, at the end of 1396, Henry Bolingbroke is still a young man, still regarded as the knight of his age, brave, pious, rich, a model of chivalry. But he's something of a hero without a cause. Politically, rather sidelined, no longer in line for the throne, his father head of his family. However, fate had plans. Next week is my standard week off and we have a guest episode 
rather a good one, I think, from Royfield Brown, author of How Jamaica Conquered the World. I can see your brows furrowing and wondering what the connection is. Well, Royfield's done a piece on the 70s, which is super fun, has super little to do with Richard II, and since I was there, as it were, feels super odd, but it is a lot of fun. Then the week after, hopefully, if I can knuckle down to a bit of writing, we'll have the great drama of Richard's reign. Ooh, and indeed, Mrs. Next, thanks to some donators. Oak, you have been most generous. Thank you. Amy, words fail me. Alan and John, thank you so much. And Bill, you shouldn't have, but I'm glad you did again. And then thanks everyone for listening. For all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes, Facebook. Good luck everyone, and have a great couple of weeks.